0: If you belong to Jesus' spiritual kingdom, if you are truly a Christian, if you are his disciple, then God has given you an amazing power of influence on the world around you.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington, Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part 7 of The Power of Your Influence. We are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. So far, you've discovered that if you're truly a Christian, and if you are Christ's disciple, God has given you an amazing power of influence on the world around you. And Jesus summarizes that influence with two images, salt and light. But does the command for Christians to be salt and light mean speaking out on ethical and cultural issues, serving in humanitarian causes, or being active in political issues? Let's join our teacher now to find out, here on The Word Unleashed.
0: I was reminded that as I was thinking about where I wanted to go this week, that language evolves and changes, as does our understanding of that language I think one of the most fascinating things is when in a short period of time, a word or a phrase drifts so much from its original meaning that it actually ends up meaning the opposite. That's happened in our lifetime. When I was growing up back in the 60s and 70s, if something happened in the boys' locker room, which is unfortunately often happens in boys' locker rooms, uh, that was really disgusting or, you know, just way out of touch with what should have been done, you said something like this. Oh, man, you are sick. That is, that is sick. And you meant disgusting, distasteful. Well, that has changed. A few years ago, and you can see this in the Oxford English Dictionary, there are, there are four listings in the Oxford English Dictionary for sick. The first three are really bad. They're things like you know, physical illness, vomiting, mental illness. And number four is excellent. How did that happen? Well, a few years back, somebody started thinking it would be a good idea to say if something was excellent, oh man, that's sick. (laughs) It's exactly the opposite within my lifetime. As I thought about what happens with the language and with our understanding of the language, I was reminded of the fact that I think we as Christians are in danger of allowing that same kind of drift to occur in the meaning of the salt and light metaphors that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. Today, what I want to do is back up and examine the drift that has already occurred pertaining to these metaphors, and I want us to consider how to correct it. Let me invite you again to read with me as a starting place for our study, Matthew chapter 5. Verses 13 to 16. After the Beatitudes and describing what the people who are in his kingdom are like, Jesus says in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. As we have studied this passage together... I've reminded you that the basic thrust of these verses is this. If you belong to Jesus' spiritual kingdom, if you are truly a Christian, if you are his disciple, then God has given you an amazing power of influence on the world around you. And he summarizes that influence and its power with those two images salt and light. He says in verse 13, We are the salt of the earth. Just as in the ancient world, salt served as a preservative against rotting and decaying meat, Christians are a preserving, purifying influence in the world in which we live. A second illustration that Jesus uses is in verses 14 to 16. We are the light of the world. And last week, we learned that Jesus here teaches us four very specific truths about the power of our influence likened to light. First of all, our influence is illuminating. It brings light into the darkness and allows the reality to be seen. It shows up that which is dirty and filthy, and by our presence, we also show that which is good and desirable and attractive. Just as turning on the light in a room exposes that which is filthy and that which is beautiful, so our presence does in the world. We learn that our influence is inevitable. Like a city, with all of its lights burning at night, built up on a mountain, can't be hidden. Neither can our influence as believers be hidden. It is inevitable. It will happen. If you're a Christian living as a Christian, you will have influence. Our influence is predetermined. Verse 15 says, the person who lights a lamp does so to put it on the lampstand so that it lights the house. The person in the metaphor doing this is God. God has made us a light. He's put us in a dark place in the place in which we live, the place in which we serve and minister, and He has the idea of our being lights. That was His intention. He predetermined to put you in the dark place where you are with the intention that you would be a light. Our influence in verse 16 is prescribed. Jesus makes it very personal. He says, Let me tell you what you need to do. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This week, I want us to step back from this passage and take a more historical view of how this passage has been interpreted. Because over the last 150 years, this passage has been misused and abused in various ways. Let me give you just a few of the common ways. It has been misused. First of all, we could say it's been misused to justify not sharing the gospel directly. Well, I'm just being salt and light. I don't really need to open my mouth and share the gospel with the people at work or at school. I'm just going to be salt and light and it'll be okay. That's not what this passage is teaching. Being salt and light is more than simply being somewhere. Secondly, it's been misused to summarize the church's mission. People have come to this passage and said, this is the mission of the church in the world, to be salt and to be light. A third misuse is it has served as an apologetic for the church's political involvement in various cultural and ethical issues. We're to be salt and light, so the church needs to speak out on every ethical and every cultural issue Issue statements, be involved in politics, we're to be salt and light. A fourth misuse of this text is to urge the church to emphasize humanitarian causes. And a fifth abuse or misuse of this passage for some is they identify being salt and light, and frankly the entire Sermon on the Mount, as the basis on which we are made right with God. You need... To do these things, and if you do these good works, then God will accept you. In Catholicism, in liberal Protestantism, and in all false religion, good works are part of the basis on which a man gains a right standing before God. For example... One anathema in the Council of Trent, which was a mid-16th century Catholic response to the Reformation, reads like this, If anyone says that the righteousness received in justification is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but he says that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification already obtained, but not the cause of its increase, let him be damned. Couldn't be clearer. Good works are how we increase our right standing before God, according to that. Now, those are all misuses and abuses of this text, but what is the legitimate use of this passage in the context in which it occurs and in the context of the rest of Scripture? Now, as we begin, and again, put on your seatbelts, I want to give you a broader historical perspective We are very easily tied to our times and subject to our times. But over the last 150 years, there have been three great historical shifts on the view of this passage and the church's role as salt and light. Let me just give them to you briefly now. I'm going to use some phrases and things that I will try to explain, but if you aren't with me on every step, it's okay. You'll get the full sweep of what I'm trying to say. First of all, the first movement that happened in the history of the church that affected this was the impact of liberalism. What's liberalism? Well, it began in the late 1800s. The prevailing philosophy of the time was rationalism. Rationalism says by my reason, by human reason we can get to the truth. And that gave birth to religious skepticism in those that were connected to Christianity. It began with several German theologians and eventually spread across the globe. These liberals, as they're called, were anti-supernaturalists. They believed God made the world, but that He never intervened in any miraculous way in the world in which we live. They rejected the possibility of all miracles. But they still wanted to hold on to some form of the Christian faith. So they denied everything miraculous in the Scripture. That included the miracles of the Old Testament, the miracles of Moses, of Elijah and Elisha. In the New Testament, the miracles of Jesus, even the resurrection. They even denied the reality of the miracle of the new birth or regeneration. Now, strip that all out, and what are you left with? You're left with Christian behavior. You're left with what they called the ethics of Jesus. Living like Jesus lived. That's when Sheldon wrote his book, asking the question, what would Jesus do? If spiritual salvation is not the goal of the Christian mission, what is? Well, it simply became doing good. Doing good to your fellow man. Making the world a better place to be. So liberalism then became consumed with humanitarian causes. Liberal Protestantism came to believe that the church should change its mission from the salvation of individual souls to the salvation of society. Let's save the world. This new approach was called the social gospel. I think the best description of the social gospel I've read was that of H. Richard Niebuhr who wrote this. This is the social gospel. This is liberalism in a nutshell. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of a Christ without a cross. God isn't angry with sin. In fact, men have no sin. You can get into the kingdom easily, and Christ came, but he didn't need to die. That's liberalism. They denied everything miraculous about our faith. In response to liberalism came the rise of fundamentalism. In the early 1900s, in response to liberalism, fundamentalism was born. Now, in spite of the pejorative sound of that term today, fundamentalism began as a legitimate defense of the truth of the Scripture. We stand on the shoulders of those men who in the early 1900s were fundamentalists. That's when men such as J. Gresham Machen, the great Princeton theologian, defended the Scripture but because of the flood of liberalism, a number of true believers who had defended the truth started other organizations. It was during the 1920s that a slew of Christian organizations were founded. That's when you had Christian colleges like Wheaton and Bob Jones and Los Angeles Baptist Bible College were begun. That's when Westminster Theological Seminary was begun, Dallas Theological Seminary, etc. They were all begun. In defense of the truth against liberalism. In fact, Machen left Princeton and in 1929 started Westminster Theological Seminary. In addition, the church in which he served left the denomination that he served in and started the Orthodox Presbyterian denomination, which unfortunately today has followed in the same path as what they came out of. Men who are true to the Scripture, men who were true to the Scripture, defended it against attacks. In areas like the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, the reality of biblical miracles, that's fundamentalism. But as the years passed, fundamentalism broke into two distinct groups. One of those groups we will call ultra-fundamentalism. These were the men who, having fought the battle against liberalism, loved fighting. And just kept fighting everybody that showed up on the horizon. They began to fight other true Christians about all the issues on which they disagreed. They became ultra-separatists. This is the fruit of organizations like Bob Jones and others. This view is still alive and well today. Ultra-fundamentalism. The other group that sort of broke out of that original fundamentalism, let's call evangelicalism. In the 50s and 60s and 70s, this group was the core of orthodox Christianity. And as a whole, they maintained the biblical priority of the gospel. They defended the truth of Scripture against liberalism without succumbing to the excesses of the fighting fundamentalists. But this has changed. You need to be very clear on this. We call ourselves evangelicals, and rightly so. But evangelicalism has become a huge umbrella that covers a lot of things that we would never be comfortable with. Over the last 30 years, evangelicalism has completely lost its biblical and theological moorings and a biblical understanding of its mission. And who knows, the time may come in the near future when some new response is necessary and a J. Gresham Machen of our age needs to stand up. But that's where we are for now. Now, the third historical movement on this issue has largely arisen within the last 20 years. The recent influence of the emerging church. From evangelicalism, from those who call themselves evangelicals, arose a young group of men who were very much at odds with the seeker sensitive churches in which they'd grown up, rightly so. But they also were heavily influenced by postmodernism. The idea that either there is no truth, or if there is truth, we can't know it. Typically, that's where they stand. The leader of the movement that was called the Emerging or Emergent Church was a man named Brian McLaren. He became the spokesman, really. He has denied in writing the reality of hell, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and other key doctrines that we all believe and love. So obviously then, their Christianity couldn't be about about doctrine, couldn't be about the truth. So instead, their Christianity became again about the ethics of Jesus. McLaren, for example, believes that Jesus' message is, quote, about poverty, slavery, and a social agenda. It is not about justification from sin, end quote. For McLaren and others, they have fully embraced the theology of of liberalism. Many others in the emergent movement have embraced the ethics of liberalism. They have called their approach, and this is a key word for you to know, they've called their approach missional. McLaren defines that word missional this way. It is a generous third way between the conservative personal savior gospel and the liberal version of it. My missional calling, he writes, is blessed in this life to be a blessing to everyone on earth, to help our world get back on the road to being truly and wholly good again the way God created it to be, end quote. A man named Rob Bell writes this, for Jesus, the question wasn't how do I get into heaven, but how do I bring heaven here? The goal isn't escaping this world, but making this world the kind of place God can come home to and God is remaking us into the kind of people who can do this kind of work, end quote. They changed what was called the social gospel in liberalism into what is now called social justice. Now, although the emergent movement today has been fractured and splintered in a number of ways, their rebranding of the ethics of of liberalism has remained. And here's the key, folks. The reason I trace all of that is it has hugely influenced mainstream evangelicalism. If you listen to the radio, if you read Christian books, these ideas will be there, and you may not even be aware of them. Let me give you a couple of quotes of voices that are attached to evangelicalism saying things like this today. Now, I'm not criticizing everything these men have said or written. Please understand that. All I want you to get is that they have been influenced, as we all can be easily, by these ideas that are relatively new in our day and are really liberalism rewarmed. Francis Chan, in his book Crazy Love, which I know a number of you have read, says the church should be, quote, about alleviating suffering in the world. Much of the poor's daily hardship and suffering could be relieved with access to food, clean water, clothing, adequate shelter, or basic medical attention. I believe that God wants His people, the church, to meet these needs. "End quote." David Pratt, or excuse me, Platt, in his book Radical writes, "As we meet needs on earth, we are proclaiming a gospel that transforms lives for eternity. As we meet needs." That's the gospel. Tim Keller writes, The purpose of Jesus' coming is not just to bring personal forgiveness and peace, but also justice and shalom to the world. The work of the Spirit of God is not only to save souls, but also to care and cultivate the face of the earth, the material world. N.T. Wright, a British theologian who, frankly, is drifting further afield from, from classic orthodoxy, writes this. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus is Lord, Lord of the world, Lord of the cosmos, Lord of the earth, of the ozone layer, of whales and waterfalls of trees and tortoises. Of course, we agree that he's over all things, but here's the key. As soon as we get this right, we destroy at a stroke the disastrous dichotomy that has existed in people's minds between preaching the gospel on the one hand and what used to be called social action or social justice on the other, end quote. In other words, we need to see that's the gospel too. The practical result of all this has been to downplay the proclamation of the gospel in evangelical churches and to emphasize humanitarian causes. Today, for example, there are well-meaning Christians and churches who are busy digging wells in Africa to alleviate human suffering, which I'm fully supportive of, but they do so without ever directly sharing the gospel. What does the Bible teach? How should we apply as individuals and as the church these salt and light metaphors? Well, we've seen the broader historical perspective, and I've just given you a whirlwind tour of that. But let's move secondly to a deeper biblical perspective. Last time I gave you a broad outline of how we are to let our light shine in the world. Jesus says, let your light shine. How do we do that? Well, in the New Testament, there are three primary ways that we as Christians serve as light to the world. First of all, by our character, by being a picture of Jesus in the gospel. Listen, if you are the kind of person described in the Beatitudes, you will be salt, you will be light. It will happen because you will be so radically different from the people around you. So we are light by simply being who we're supposed to be in Christ. Secondly, we are light by our good works, by living out the implications of the gospel, by what we do. And thirdly, we are light by our message, by proclaiming Jesus and the gospel. Now today... I want us to look just at the second of those in more detail. Because in Matthew 5.16, Jesus specifically refers to our light being our good works. Look at verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.
1: It's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 7 of his series, The Power of Your Influence. Tom will have part 8 for you next time as he once again takes us to God's Word. But before we leave you today, Tom has some closing thoughts for us. Tom?
0: You know, Bill, I love the clarity with which our Lord teaches us here. He says we're to be light. We're to let our light shine. How? How? Well, he's reminding us there are three main ways that happens. First, by our character, by, by being a picture of Jesus and the gospel in how we live. And secondly, by our good works, by living out daily the implications of the gospel by what we do. And thirdly, by our message, that is, by proclaiming Jesus and the gospel to others That's how we are called to be light to the
1: world. And Jesus says, let your light shine. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us, you can find out how to do so by visiting the wordunleashed.org. That's the wordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.